Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's that classic known as Rashomon. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film in the series topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, but don't take my word for it. (laughs) Uh, Hello, I am Brian, and that's not how I remember it. That's right, I'm doubling down on that joke, Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who aren't seeing this, uh, Brian's background is of the Simpsons bit in which they were talking about Rashomon, and Homer made that particular joke. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, but we're not the only ones here, Brian. Uh, for the first time for Cinema to the Letter, we start out a season with a guest. Uh, we have uh, here um, a writer in his own right, and he's done some podcasting stuff before. Uh, John Patterson. John, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here tonight. Happy to talk about a movie that I really love. Great. Hell yeah. Uh, so we're, we should mention that uh, for this particular episode with Rashomon, it is starting off our fourth season, which uh, the season is one, one Oscar. And we should probably start off with a bit of the Oscar talk. I'm curious, John, as a film person, uh, is your relationship to the Oscars a bit jaded at this point? I mean, it can be. I pay attention to them in kind of a cursory way. I, th- I think it's interesting to see like the trends of what's what's winning in a certain year and how that is kind of reflects like attitudes at the time within the film industry. But other than that, uh, mostly for me, the Oscars is me and my friends do a bracket for it every year and see who gets the closest to being right. So that's about the extent of my main care about the Oscars for the most part. Of course, when money's on the line, that's the most crucial thing. Oh, no, not for money. Come on. Or is it? Who knows? <laughs> uh, but yeah, Brian, we've talked many times that uh, we, I think we both have a similar kind of love-hate relationship with the Oscars at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, on the one hand, it is like a, a celebration of the movies and what movies came out this year and kind of, you know, that angle of it. It's, it's fun to get to see people be celebrated for their work, and that's great. But then on the other hand, there's like just all the things that we all complain about the Oscars of, you know, how long they are. And of course the particular movies that they do pick and where they tend to go uh, in their picks usually. But I don't know. I, I kind of am in this weird middle ground of like, I acknowledge that like they are not the most important thing in the entire world for the film industry, but also I, th- I think that they're quite fun. And every single year I get roped into that, like excitement of just like, what's going to win, what's going to happen. Like, how will the show go off the rails this year? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right, with our favorite host, Jimmy Kimmel. Everyone's favorite yeah, host. Exactly, we right? This is exactly. <laughs> right, clearly. Uh, but yeah, I think I have a similar thing where like, there was a point when I was a kid where I got very much invested, especially in like, usually the one movie I would have seen during right. that mm-hmm. sort of Oscar run. Um, but yeah, I think in recent years, it's just kind of become, you know, just an interesting kind of like side 
thing where, I, you know, when I was a kid, it used to kind of be like, oh, you want an Oscar, you're legitimate. Like, every movie that's won an Oscar is good. Right. Kind of thing. And as you grow up, you realize that's probably not the case. Uh, more often than not, it's about campaigning and stuff like sure. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting, especially from, like, a film history perspective, because I love going to, like, the Wikipedia rabbit holes of, like, Oscars of a certain year, especially in the past, and finding, you know, weird winners, weird nominees, also just, especially in the case of, you know, what we're talking about here, weird old Oscar history, because, like, doing the research <laughs> for this, Brian, we had a lot of weird things, where, like, we had, there was, like, Wikipedia list of various movies that have won Oscars, and... It's interesting how many, like, different kind of weird stipulations there were back in, like, the early days of the Oscars. Uh, like, how the right. first year, it's, like, 1927 and 28 awards, and eligibility is very weird after that point, and weird categories that don't make any fucking sense. Like, what? What is this? <laughs> Why is this a category? <laughs> yeah, and it's especially interesting because of, like, especially what we're talking about today, like, the best... What, what is it called now? It's called best... It's international film. Right. Previously was called foreign language film, right? Yes. For like the longest Until 2020. time. 2020. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's interesting, especially this movie, considering, um, you know, the caveat that I wasn't aware of, of the fact that this movie did win be- uh, best international film, even though that wasn't a category, but it didn't exactly win it in 1950. Right. Yeah, it's a weird thing. So this is a basic <laughs> Oscar history thing with Rashomon. Um, it did win in 1952 the most outstanding foreign language film released in the United States during 1951. Very long on I don't know how you can grade Such that an Oscar. <laughs> what a <laughs> weird <laughs> category name. <laughs> right, yes, because from 47 to 55, the Academy Awards presented that as an honorary Oscar award, which we tried to avoid for this season. But literally, as I was putting the notes together for this, I realized, oh, fuck, it was honorary at the time. But whatever. We're making an exception for Akira Kurosawa, right. shockingly. Um, but uh, then there's also the weird thing where this was nominated for another Oscar for Best Art Direction for a Black and White Film, but not until 1953, because that's when it would have been eligible for the competitive awards. It's so weird. I don't get how that works. <laughs> yeah, Oscar's history is just so confusing and all the cat like just that like art direction for a black and white film the weird like specificity of it like yeah so many weird things going on with the oscars and, and throughout their history right and even in between like 47 55 not all of those years got like a best foreign language honorary award because it was honorary it wasn't right. until like oh you others have to like present us the united states of america and our voting <laughs> <laughs> film board with something truly amazing um, but yeah, it's, it's, John, you gotta be with us, right? This is so odd. <laughs> this is a thing. I mean, going back through the histories of the Oscars in general is weird. Like, uh, when we were, when I was looking at things to include in a, a further segment in this very podcast, I was just reminded of like all the times things change. And like you were saying, the hyper specificity of awards going into it. Cause I think maybe they thought people wouldn't understand what it was. They're like, everyone outside thinks movie making is magic. So we're just gonna make it obvious what it is. And there are foreign language awards that predate this, like the Bicycle Thieves won in, like, what was it, like, 1949, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. like, it, it's some are on and off, and then they become codified as actual, like, competition awards, and some are just given just because they felt like it. Like, the early days were a real Wild West, and, well, the 20s in the film industry, and, you know, the 40s and onwards with Oscars, so... Good thing Hollywood changed. Nothing wrong's happened since. Yeah, it's never been bad. We've never had no. bad Oscar winners ever either. Yeah. No, and now ever. it's perfect. No, it's right. a perfect <laughs> now system. it's been perfected. And and this year, I'm sure, is going to be 
perfect and nothing bad's going to happen and there's going to be no no discourse actually i'm sure no, the no. most deserving film will win and everyone in, in cinephile land will line up to applaud it i'm sure that's exactly what's going to happen yeah but there's even just just a weird thing also with just that whole like foreign language or international film category in general because it, it's the weird system where from what i understand like every country submits one movie and there's a likelihood that certain countries won't get nominated. Like, for example, we're talking about a Japanese film today. Only 16 films in the history of the Oscars have been nominated for that category. And mm-hmm. um, only two have won with Departures and Drive My Car. So I guess in terms of, since it's been competitive, basically. Yeah. Those are the only two Japanese winners. And Akira Kurosawa did win the competitive version of this award in 75 with Dersu Uzala, though that was a Soviet film. Which is weird to think about that... <laughs> That, that that whole movie, if you don't know that movie, that is such a weird It's thing. a great movie. I love that movie. Very a good lot. movie, yeah. But it's such a like weird production and yeah. stuff around it. But it's it's a fascinating film, yes. Um but yeah, it's it's so weird that that happens. Even like, you know, I loved when Parasite went a couple of years ago. But I, mm-hmm. if I'm correct, that was like the first time South Korea was even nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, which is like wild so. to me. Yeah. yeah. That is, that is also wild, but I think you're also right, as far as I can remember. I do think, though, we, we kind of, well, while we're on this kind of category, I think it's interesting to know how kind of, with Parasite and with, like, Drive My Car and stuff, and, like, other films like Roma and stuff like that, like, there has been this sort of slow push to kind of get, like, to not think of it in such kind of binary terms of like, these are the American films and these are the other movies, right? I like that we are kind of getting like Parasite winning Best Picture and like, you know, Hamaguchi being like uh, nominated and, and you know, uh, especially this year, I think we're, it, it'll be interesting to kind of, you know, see kind of some movies like um, Anatomy of a Fall, which kind of fits into like a weird kind of category of like it is a foreign film but some of it's in english and so it's an interesting kind of breaking down of these barriers that we're starting to get even though like probably should have happened earlier if i'm being honest yeah yeah um and by the way i did read my research i was correct about parasite still bananas and no south korean movies been nominated since like come on guys come on well i guess we can say that the Academy has decided that South Korea has one good film and the rest are not worth watching, which is a choice, we'll say. Good on but, Bong, finally made a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> finally. <laughs> oh, that felt that felt that felt bad to say out loud. I hope the sarcasm was evident. <laughs> Death of sarcasm, nothing. Just people like Dear Cinema to the Look, how dare you? This merch director bong like that. I can't uh, wait to I, I can't wait to get letterbox lists of great South Korean films. And I'll just be like, I've watched all these guys. Don't worry about it. I was joking. Don't worry. Don't come for me. I'm fine. I, John, have you seen Old Boy? You should probably see Old Boy. It's, it's a pretty good it. movie. I don't know if you heard. Uh, pretty good movie. I don't even think. It. No, it is a pretty good movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what? Let's uh, get into the film we're talking about today. Uh, let's go ahead and start talking about Rashomon. Yes, 
そしてその売り4つの口が物語る4つの地獄の声を聞かされたまさにこれは心のジャングルの藪の中の物語ギラギラと光る重欲の目が時平安の末真夏の藪の中炎と燃え上がる男女愛欲の大絵巻人格闘激闘行き詰まる男と男の決闘平然と嘲笑う幼鳥たる美女神か魔か後輩の都の一角人間の喜怒哀楽を風と共にそびえて聞いた大羅城門So, Rashomon came out August 25th, 1950 in Japan from director-writer Akira Kurosawa, which we should probably just get into that element of it. Obviously, you know, this might be a hot take to some people, but Brian and I stand by, I'm sure John stands by it. Akira Kurosawa made some good movies. <laughs> We're breaking barriers by saying this. Yep. <laughs> Truly yeah. good original. The, the hottest take I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I remember, I mean... I watched most of his movies around kind of the pandemic, really. Like, I wasn't watching a lot of movies in 2020, and I was watching a lot of, like, a lot of shows, a lot of, like, animated superhero shows from the 90s, but that's, like, a whole other topic. Yeah, I, I decided, like, oh, I should just watch all of Akira Kurosawa's films, and I watched, like, almost all of them. I didn't do every single one. But, um, yeah, he's one of those filmmakers who he has at least five masterpieces. Like, at least you know certainly and it's crazy watching his movies and he rarely missed you know he, he really doesn't have that many movies i would consider bad or even like meh i i think all of them are really interesting and fascinating in in some way john what's your history with kurosawa in particular my history with kurosawa kind of mirrors a lot of my history with like a lot of the old greats and stuff like that i grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere we had one video store that when dvds were coming out they had some of those but they had a ton of vhs's through some radio show i managed to win a year of free vhs specifically only vhs rental so i just started digging through stuff so I watched, what was the first one? It would have been Sanjuro on VHS, like back in like 2002, maybe. And then over the years, I found more of them. And then when I went to college, uh, the library had like a bunch of stuff that was out of print at the time that I was able to watch. So I was able to work through most of his filmography then. And in the years since, I've caught up on the stuff that I've missed here and there. But I've seen most. I've seen a lot of his films. I wouldn't say I've seen all of them without looking at a list right now, but I've seen a lot of them. A lot of his like pre-war stuff is a little bit harder to get a handle of right yeah so that's probably my biggest like limitation my biggest gap when it comes to his film work but i have been watching him for a long long time at this point i guess i'm a bit more of the novice here because akira kurosawa when i was growing up was just kind of like a name i knew was like oh that's a great filmmaker especially from japan and you haven't seen a lot of japanese movies thomas and it felt almost kind of intimidating to me to some degree i didn't mm-hmm. see an akira kurosawa film until in college i saw seven samurai in a theater like yeah. big traditional screen and that was a tremendous experience um i saw it was on my birthday and th- that night was the first time i ever got blackout drunk but that's a story for a different <laughs> day um <laughs> as opposed to uh with akira kurosawa after that point I saw a bunch of his uh, movies, not a huge amount. I'm not as, I, I think I'm probably the least versed here, but I've seen like Hidden Fortress, 
Ikiru, um, which I mainly watched because of the fucking, what was the Bill Nye movie? That was a remake. Wasn't it just of it? called To Live? Like, wasn't it literally to, right. just a translation? I think it's just of... the American title. Yeah, I watched it in prep for that, and that just a what? wild, wild thing that happened. Were you unaware of this, John? That, that I, happened? I was. This is a what? <laughs> a Bill Nye remake of Akiru? Yes, it's Bill Nye starring in a British trans. Oh, Bill Nye, not Bill Nye. I'm sorry. No, not Bill Nye. That the Bill Nye. <laughs> that would My be brain for a second was just like, this is the weirdest confluence of things. So please tell me more. <laughs> And then he's like on the swing. He's like, inertia is a property of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, Bill Nye, he was nominated for an Oscar for it. You know, he did a great job at something that feel, felt really pointless, especially there are certain shots that are like shot for shot, the same, like the swing thing. Yeah. It was like shot for shot. I'm like, why the fuck would you even bother with this? Akira's a great movie. Um, but yeah, I've seen that. I've seen Throne of Blood. I recently watched Yojimbo and Sanjaro um, in prep yeah. for this. Uh, great movies, especially Sanjiro. Love that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and High and Low, of course. I think kind of underrated amongst, like, the classic era, um, I would say. Because that movie's fucking, like, intense. And it's just people talking in rooms. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes that's all you need. He is one of those kind of directors. You know, you could name, like, five to ten of his movies. And, like, the low, you know, you rank them. And, like, the, the lower kind of half of that list would still be like masterpieces i think he you know he just made so many great movies and even kind of like some of the ones that like i feel like are kind of underappreciated or just like i watched it kind of just from a completionist standpoint right like there's a the Mm -hmm. i live in fear uh which is like a really like chilling movie about like you know post uh world war ii japan and like nuclear fear and all, all that stuff and it's not a very talked about movie i don't think but it it's great and it just shows how great of a director he was i think yeah um i'm, I'm curious john what, what do you think is like the main appeal of kurosawa why do you think he still kind of lasts in the film culture at this point i know you'll be the first one to say any of this and i haven't seen much writing or anything about it so you, <laughs> you'll be our freshest take possible no i i think that uh the reason that he's lasted so long is that his film's for all of their depth and looks into humanity and everything like that, his films are still really compelling and easy to sit down and watch. Like seven samurai is probably one of the easiest three plus hour long movies there is to watch in the entire world. Like you sit down and you don't even realize the time's passed during it. Or you could take a movie like Redbeard, which is not like have any action or anything like that. And it's still just as compelling. It's the attention to detail. It's the way the shots all blend into each other. It's the editing. Like there's a certain mastery of the style that almost makes you forget you're watching a movie at a certain point. Like you're not sitting there like, Oh, this is such a daring formal technique. You're sitting there going, Oh, I love this shit. I'm going to watch every last second of this. It's the sort of thing that I think is taken for granted a lot because it, Mm -hmm. it can be really easy to say why technically and formally he's a very interesting and very masterful filmmaker. But the fact that he can just make you forget the constructs in a way when you're watching his films is something that is not common at all in filmmaking. And it never feels flashy or showy, even something that's really bright, colorful and like has huge set pieces like Ron does not have that feeling like, Hey, look at what I can do. It has a feeling. Everything serves the story at the end of the day. And he managed to do that while also getting great performances out of his actors. And there's a consistency across it, no matter what the subject matter of each film is. So that's kind of a non-answer by just saying, yeah, he's great, but yeah, he's great. That's why, that's why people still love him. <laughs> no, I get that though. Cause I think especially when I watched seven samurai, 
it was wild to me to realize, like, oh, despite this, you know, being a Criterion Collection, you know, release, and, like, esteemed as one of the great movies of all time, and discussed in, like, film classes and stuff like that, it's a rousing adventure that you mm-hmm. really get swept up in, like you mentioned before, and especially watching that and realizing, like, oh, right, yeah, Magnificent Seven is a remake of this. Or yeah. even especially, like, oh, A Bug's Life did rip this off. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, like, stuff like that. It's interesting to see just how, like, his films have made ripples to film that still comes out today. And, I mean, it can even be something as so simple as, like, uh, tracing the lines between Yohimbo and what's the Clint Eastwood one? The remake of uh, uh, Fistful, Fistful of Dollars. Fistful of Dollars yeah. yeah. And, like, you can see the, the parallels there and how they're the same, but they have completely different, like... To, not even different tones, but they they feel very different, and 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 the climax of Yoimbo where he draws his sword and cuts that man's arm off, and you see it fall. And it's like there's not that sort of violence in film at the time, so seeing it is a huge shock, and it also makes you go, "Fuck yeah, he's got him now!" You know, like it's just like sort the of exclamation point mark to that particular movie where it wasn't that violent prior to that. No, not it at all. It really isn't at all. And then just a massive blood squirt. Yeah, like, an interesting thing is, like, you mentioned, like, Seven Samurai and it being, like, a very, it's a very fun movie to watch. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's one of those movies, like, it feels like, you know, you're doing homework when you watch it. You're like, okay, let me right. sit down and finally watch this this great movie. And, like, I, for many years, like, I had owned uh, the Criterion version of it. And it had just kind of sat on my shelf because I was like, oh three and a half hour movie like yeah. it's, it's a bit older like is it gonna feel you know and then i finally like watched it and i it was just incredibly easy to watch and so much fun to watch um and, and i think an, an interesting thing about kurosawa is that like he often gets kind of lumped into like he made samurai movies right and his samurai right. movies are kind of the most well known of course but he really worked in so many other genres right like high and low is one of his best films and it is yeah. a like incredibly like tight like thriller and then like it becomes a procedural like toward you know in the back half and so i think it's it's like you said john that like consistency but also the variety of movies he made like he made yeah. so many different kinds of movies and especially like later into his career of course with like moving into color and the, the way he used color is like oh, like yeah. no one else did in like Kagemusha mm-hmm. as well. Like, yeah, it's interesting to kind of uh, look at him and just, just how many different avenues of, of movies he made. Yeah. And I'd even say like some of the pre Rashomon stuff, like Drunken Angel and Stray Dog are both like oh, incredible Dogs. films that are worth watching. Like, yeah. fantastic. And they don't fit into the Samurai Jidaigeki subgenre at all. They're, just incredible like post-war stories essentially and like a modern japan and at the time and yeah no all all bangers no notes and it's so interesting also how his movies manage to like despite often being you know period pieces set in like you mentioned like samurai times or it's still interesting how many of his stories still feel very universal to the degree that there's mm-hmm. an interesting sort of backstory with um of all things a canon movie called runaway train which was literally based on a story that Akira Kurosawa had conceived, but never made into a film. And then they just put, made it in America, and it's a canon movie that got nominated for fucking Oscars, everybody. (laughs) It's so weird that that happened. But you can only get that from, like, an Akira Kurosawa, to some degree, um, in the DNA of that movie. But, you know, let's talk about Rashomon a bit more. Um, 
this is one that definitely has had a lot of influence uh, from, say, The Last Duel a couple years ago or Brian Simpson's background, stuff like that, uh, really <laughs> contributing to culture. But um, it's interesting, especially for me, because this is the first time I'd ever seen Rashomon. Uh, it, it was always, it's another one where, like, I heard, like, The Simpsons joke and other things that basically, like, oh, okay, a story told from different perspectives and whatnot. I've seen movies like that. That sounds interesting. I'm curious to see how this one goes. And, um, this one's especially fascinating for even that type of movie that it would influence. We'll talk about it. And we should probably say, before we get started on this fair warning, you know, given the nature of this story, there will be discussion of sexual assault and rape and some other uncomfortable things. If those are triggering for you in any way, uh, just be advised that we'll be going into that as we continue along here. But if you're unaware, basic plot synopsis of this movie is uh, we open on a rainy day, uh, just pouring outside, and uh, there are two men sitting in there, a woodcutter and a priest. And then this commoner guy uh, comes out down to take shelter. And he's like, why are you guys so down in the dumps? Why are you guys so bummed out? What's happening? And they talk about how they were just uh, giving testimony at a trial. Centers around three people, a bandit, a samurai, and the samurai's wife. Um, and from the various different testimonies, there are different versions of the story in which uh, the bandit ends up uh, encountering this couple in the woods ends up uh, raping the wife and then killing the husband. And so um, it's these various different versions of the story from the people involved, uh, even the dead ones, as we'll talk about in a moment. But yeah, so you've seen probably a movie inspired by this out there, if, even, if you, even if you haven't seen Rashomon itself. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with our guest, John. Uh, what are your general feelings about Rashomon, especially in terms of the Akira Kurosawa filmography? I think uh, Rashomon's interesting because... It has a lot of negative things to say about uh, human beings in general, like not not in an overall pessimistic worldview by the end of it, but like it really like calls out certain aspects of the way people act and have, try to have themselves perceived. And also like the hour and a half long runtime, like this film goes by like nobody's business. Yeah. And I think the small use of sets and recurring uh, locations and having very slightly different takes from each one of the actors for each one of the potential timelines i guess you could call it make for a really like interesting and nuanced viewing especially like second or third time you sit down and watch the movie like you, there's always little details you'll pick up on that you didn't see before i think it's really open-ended and the way it's supposed to be like conceived as what's the truth or not because it never really actually says that and it, the film never makes it apparent that that's like what's necessary about the film in general What's necessary is the way that people want themselves to be perceived. So it's the way they tell these stories for other people to think of them a certain way. And I think that's a really fascinating way to take it. A lot of films that say they took uh, ideas from Rashomon tend to go around the multiple truths, but here's the real one by the end of the film. Right. And I don't say that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's just not the way this film is structured. Like the last duel did it when it specifically says that the last, uh, series of testimony and scenes is the actual truth it implies it through the subtitle that whatever but I, I still like that movie but like the way that this film does it it deals with the subtleties of like the human expectation of how you expect other people to perceive you is really interesting and i like this movie a lot and it's an hour and a half and you can fit it in as soon as you get home from work right before you re record a podcast so it's perfect but by the way, not even an hour and a half, 88 minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something even Al Pacino couldn't achieve with the film 88 minutes. That movie's over 88 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And still upsets me. But, uh, Brian, what about you? What are your thoughts on Rashomon? 
Yeah, I, I mean, this is. I think this is the Kurosawa film I've seen the most amount of times. I, I think I, I saw it in high school. It was probably the first one I ever saw of his, and I've revisited it a few times. And like John, you nailed it. Like I, I think one of the things that a lot of movies that are inspired by this get not not wrong, but I think get different is having implying that one of the versions is the correct version when that's not really what this movie's doing really really it is this like philosophical like quandary of like you know what happens when we don't trust each other what happens when people don't tell the truth and you know the way that this is all presented i think with this kind of rashomon like gate where they're at is just like decrepit and so like you know it's so depressing and and has that kind of you know post world war 2 you know feeling i think but what i think is so great about this movie is that it doesn't tell you what the correct version is and it doesn't really not that it doesn't care about it but i don't think that's the it's not the point of the movie right like you could theoretically like watch this movie a bunch of times and then like pick out pieces from each individual story and form what you think is the truth but the point of the movie of course is that like it's all a subjective truth and this idea of there not being a universal truth and and i think that's such a fascinating thing to to think about especially as i've revisited this movie over and over it just really i think the the philosophical element of it has really gotten to me over the years i'm sure world events in the past few years haven't uh helped that at all but you know it's it's one of the most interesting things about this movie and you know, apart from kind of the technical aspects of it, the way it's shot and the look of the movie as well. But um, I-, I think that element of it has just really stuck with me, especially watching it this time. Yeah, I think the thing is, is, as someone who's like watching this for the first time, it is fascinating how like it's just structured in such an impeccable way where it almost feels kind of like it's an anthology film, but about the same exact event just depicted in slightly different fashions. I mean, it's weird because we get, like, at least the lead-up up until, like, the rape we only see from Mifune's perspective, right? Because right, then, right. Ap- like, all the other stories are, like, pretty much after that point for, like, what happens there. There's no, like, empirical truth necessarily. There's, there's that recent kind of, like, in the last few years, I've heard so many times, like, oh, people don't trust, like, eyewitness testimonies as much anymore as time has gone on. They've proven to be a lot less reliable, basically, mm-hmm. for especially, like, courtroom procedures and whatnot. And... I like the fact that this is basically like a courtroom drama that's mostly out of the courtroom, which I just want to mention, I'm not sure how accurate this is to like, I believe it's 12th century Japan that this takes place in, but their courtroom is like the outside sort of area with like the, like the, the little sand and stuff like that. I just, yeah. I love that element of it, especially that we have the contrast of like anybody giving testimonies in the shadows and anybody who's like watching off to the side who's already spoken is in like the direct sunlight. And it's like beating on them at the same time that they're like hearing all these different like testimonies of such a horrible event. Um, unless, you know, they're flailing around because they're possessed by a spirit. Uh, in that case, you can't really control where you are. No. Perhaps. No, <laughs> not necessarily. It, it's fascinating watching this and seeing how it's like a courtroom drama, but without much of the courtroom at all. We're just like getting these stories, but told like secondhand from people who just had to like live through that trial or live through the actual like event at least from their perspective, what they saw. And it's so fascinating how both those stories are incredibly compelling. Like, even if this was just, like, these three guys inside this, like, pouring, 
like awning area just talking about what's going on here we didn't see any of these other perspectives it would still be compelling just because like you know these actors who have mostly worked with Akira Kurosawa I mentioned Tashira Mifune um but I mean who who like just one of the best to fucking do it ever Oh yeah, Shira Mifune, truly just like one of the most expressive actors that's ever lived. Like my Zoom background features a point where he's first introduced and he just is like staring up at like a corner and we don't know why is like this guy is telling about how like, yeah, I found him on the beach. He had arrows in him and he stole a horse that clearly was like the samurai noblemans. He says so much with his face. He doesn't even need to say any lines. You can just like laugh and stare directly in your fucking face and it's just like such compelling acting. What a laugh. <laughs> what a great laugh. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he's so interesting, especially because I've mostly seen just his collaborations with Kurosawa, which they, they did like so many movies together. But like, right. it, this is, I think, a really interesting kind of entry point. It was, it was my entry point into Toshiro Mifune because he is like feral in this movie. Like he is just like a wild animal. And you know, it's interesting to kind of look at other Kurosawa films, like something like High and Low, where he plays like a businessman and he's wearing like a suit and he <laughs> still looks hot. Like he always looks hot. <laughs> but like, it's just interesting to kind of see his range. I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like, he, yeah, he's so expressive, like you said, but you can just put him anywhere. You can put him in like feudal Japan. You can put him in like modern day, like 1950s and 60s and put him in a suit and he'll, he's great. Like he can, yeah, he he just like did it all. He has a magnetism to it that few leading men really have. Like you said, he can be anywhere from in this movie where he's like the basest type of person who's just like scrabbling around, just being, you know, like filthy both physically and emo- and like uh, morally. And then you can have him in other films where he can play like just the the perfect straight man. T- throughout the entire thing and he can also be deeply funny which he is in this movie a couple times weirdly enough given the subject matter but he's got a presence and i think it's something that is like unique to him i would say and he always seems to have that sort of like i don't know what it is about him when you look at him he draws your attention every single time he's in frame even when he looks uh ridiculous or like really doomed you always feel like he has a chance like in the in the last portrayal of the duel between him and the samurai in this film and him and the husband they look ridiculous that entire sequence like it is the saddest duel between two people you'll ever see and it kind of reinforces the idea that these are people who have an idea of what they want to be as like masculine individuals and stuff like that but that all falls away when they're actually fighting each other to the death and during that he plays off that conflicting emotion of like he wants to do it, but he's afraid of it and he's afraid of dying. And like, without saying a word, he's in, like you said, he's very expressive. His uh, movements also mirror his uh, facial expressions really well. And they come together in a way that makes it a complete performance. That is, it's difficult to put your finger on exactly what works for it, but it's so, it feels like a person instead of a character. Most of the time, whenever he's around, that was a rambling answer. No, no, I think that's very accurate, honestly. I think especially, like, the wild animal thing, like, you can tell that from just the way he, like, can often almost feel like he's this, like, big lion. Like, that was apparently 
um, comparison that Kira Kurosawa brought to him was like, oh, I, I want you to be like a lion, basically, both in terms of ferocious, monstrous, all those usual things, but also even when he's like laying around, like there's the bit when he first sees the horse go by, and he's just kind of laying there like he's a, a giant wild animal sleeping. <laughs> he's like scratching his chest and, and all this other stuff that just shows once again that kind of animalistic nature. But even like later on, before the final version of the fight that we see, there's that bit where um, the wife is like tearing them down totally, the both of them. And he looks over like a child who's just like, oh, Did I do something bad? Even though he's like this monstrous, awful man, he still has this like dumb child brain of just like, No, what? Oh, I'm embarrassed now. Like, okay, fuck up, dude. Great. <laughs> But yeah, that's the thing. I think for, especially like you mentioned, like this guy is, you know, this bandit who's a rapist. We like follow the story that's very much about him, like horribly abusing this woman and then killing this man. At the same time, you do find him like truly just compelling and dimensional as a character. And I think other movies might, you know, be more willing to lean to like just the monstrous elements of that particular character. But I think it's almost more upsetting that you see like these little bits of like, childlike nature and you think like oh that that makes me kind of side with him for a second until you realize oh wait no this guy's monstrous what am i talking about that's just the power of mifune he's able to kind of trick your brain for that yeah i mean there's so many moments here like i mean just him like the way he scratches himself and the way he like kills like flies that are on his like neck or face or whatever like is just it's so like I mean, we keep saying this, but animalistic. Like, he just is, like, a wild animal here. And I don't know, the way he kind of, like, you know, walks around, like, he crawls on the floor at so many points. He's, like, yeah, it's such an interesting performance and such a weird... I don't know, I just remember the first time I saw this being, like, oh, okay, this guy is, like... I get why this guy is one of the most, kind of, popular and, and famous, like, Japanese actors ever. Um but I, I also do want to mention another kind of Kurosawa regular who's in this movie is Takashi Shimura, who doesn't get a lot to do in this movie. Like, but he's he plays the woodcutter, and he's also just one of those really incredible actors, especially in Kurosawa's films. He's the lead in like Ikiru, and he's in so many of his other movies. But he is just, I don't know, something about his face. I mean, there's a reason why, like... I will cry anytime I see him on that like swing from Ikiru. But like the way that this film begins on like those two guys and they're like so downtrodden and they're just like, like, like I can't believe this. What's like, I don't understand what's happening. And like, it really does sell you on like this, the gravity of this, right? Because like, as the third guy kind of says later, like people kill each other every day. Like what's, what's the big idea with this, but their attitude towards it is so fascinating it kind of adds a, a, a real weight to like this story which could just kind of easily just be like a you know a guy killed another guy and raped his wife like one of the characters says like these stories are are all too familiar these days or something like that shimura is so great in this movie and one of my favorite shots of him is like is the first shot we get when he's telling the story and it's like his axe and it's like the camera's like following him mm-hmm. it's a shot that doesn't look like it's from like 1950 it's a very modern looking shot and there's a lot of those in this movie as well. But yeah, I, I loved that. I love Takashi Shimura, of course, but um, really everyone in this movie is, is, is great. I mean, all the actors are just really incredible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do you guys have any, any other 
favorites uh, as well. I, I love the priest. He's a he's he's a real fun guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, Minoru Shiaki. Which, by the way, apologies if we mispronounce any of these as we go along. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's pretty great. I, we should definitely shout out uh, Machiko Koyo, the, who plays the wife here. Yep. I think is especially amazing, especially considering that is such a tough character. It's hard going back to like some of these older movies that deal with a subject like rape, and you're kind of worried, like, how is this going to be handled? Is it going to be tasteful? What's exactly going to happen? Of course, Kurosawa covers it in a very tasteful way. But at the same time, what I like about like her in particular is that like even though like we establish like, oh, these all all these people are lying to some degree, I like the fact that for her, we are in complete empathy with her this whole time. The movie is a hundred percent like on her side in terms of just like how she's been treated and how that ends up really like causing her to like lash out at these two guys. I think they do such a great job of while saying that she might have embellished some things depending on which, you know, version of the story, like what you take from any of these different stories, it's still at the same time as firmly in her corner. And I think she does such a great job of in the various different stories depicting versions of that character that are just slightly off from each other, but at the same time have that overall empathy about her as a person. Yeah, and I think a lot of her, uh, her she has probably the widest range of d- reactions between the, the different tellings of the story. Mm-hmm. So I think she has to do a lot of heavy lifting with her acting to sell it because I think the film does understand that she's kind of a victim of her times. So what she does doesn't really matter in the long run when it comes to the law or anything else. She really plays it up as essentially in the other two segments, what these people perceive this how the the woman should act in this situation basically like for Mifune he's like ah well you know I'm such raw masculine energy that she couldn't she she just loves me now and then the samurai is like well I was upset because I'm upset and I'm upset now but I'm dead so who cares and then like you have all these other things that come through it where it's like oh these people really don't think very highly of this woman at all even when it comes down to the woodcutters story at the end of the day but she manages to sell every interpretation of her character in each one of the separate segments that she's in. And I think that's a really huge testament to her ability as an actress. One of my favorite moments that she has is like in the Mifune version of the story where um, they, he, he like kisses her and she like looks up at like the sun. We get that like shot many times of like the, yes. the sun coming through the trees mm-hmm. and it's just her like staring at that for like 15 seconds or something. And then just her slowly, like, obviously it's Mifune's version. So, yeah, he, like, he he falls in love with her and all, <laughs> all of that. But it's, yeah, it's a really incredible performance. And one of the interesting things of watching this movie now is kind of, you know, reading into how it is or is not kind of feminist and, and the way it kind of treats its female characters. But, like, I think that that's all part of the film, right? Like, yeah, it is about, like you, like you guys said, like, the way that these two men think of her and then how, you know, she thinks of herself. I mean, that like the, the part where she is lashing out of like, you know, I heard you were this great bandit and I thought you could save me, but you're just, you're not, you're just a, you're, you're petty. Like my, just like my husband, it's a really kind of great moment that does give her some genuine agency and gives her kind of a character, which I think is, is interesting and is, is not necessarily expected for, films of this time and a lot of Kurosawa's films especially have really complicated relationships with their female characters um yeah. but yeah I think this is it's a it's a great performance and it's a great character 
this may shock people out there, but a movie from 1950 isn't quite up to modern feminist perspectives. Right, yeah. <laughs> I I don't necessarily you know side with everything this movie's necessarily saying about this particular topic, but at the same time, I think it does a great job of once again just making her like a truly compelling character in the same way that all three of our protagonists are like those those three sort of like main characters we follow in that part of the story, which we might as yeah. well also shout out um, the guy who plays the samurai. Uh, Masayuki Mori, and by extension, Nariko Hanma as the medium, which I just, I can't emphasize to you guys how, like, despite this movie being so old, and me hearing so much about it, I had no idea there was a fucking possession medium thing in this movie, <laughs> and they handle I, it so, like, casually, which is my favorite the, thing. Yeah. There's just the bit where they introduce, like, oh, um, well, well, we had to hear, of course, his story. It's like, wait, he died. Well, yeah, but we got a medium for him. <laughs> and we all just accept that logic like yeah of course you know sky's blue grass green mediums can give court testimonies for ghosts Rewatching this that is one of my favorite parts of the movie because like I, lo- I love this the idea of like well we need the dead man's testimony so let's get a medium in here and just <laughs> the the way that that actor Horiko, Horiko no Honma like plays that of being like possessed and like there's like the shot where she's walking like towards the camera and it's like on like kind of at a at a low angle it just like i don't know it looks so incredible and it also has like a, kind of a a very creepy and unsettling moment in a way like hearing his voice like the samurai's voice i guess coming out of of her an amazing I, dubbing too yeah like, the, yeah it's perfectly yeah. yeah to to get more a bit at least to uh Mr. Mori, I think what what he does, especially as a samurai, where he's actually like a great contrast to Toshiro Mifune, not just because obviously their characters are so different in a class structure way, but even just like the way that he, by contrast to Mifune, who's so expressive, he's mostly very stone-faced this whole movie. He doesn't like really make a lot of expressions here. It's like really just small, subtle changes uh, the way that he's like looking at people or just like his eyebrows, stuff like that. He feels so much more stone faced in a way that makes him curious to try and read, especially for like the first two tellings followed by uh, his version of it. I just love the fact that he's very much like kind of like the side kind of like almost sort of victim, quote unquote, obviously not the true victim in the circumstance, but he's kind of feels like he's separate from everybody in a weird way until he gets to tell his version of the story. It's, it's interesting how he kind of feels like a throwaway character until he isn't which I kind of like in the structure of, and I think uh, he plays that very well. I, th- I think a lot of that uh, sort of like blandness or stone-facedness or emptiness you've seen in a lot of previous stuff can be like how the other characters, like Mifune's character sees him as like a samurai, you know? So he's like, he's a stone-faced killer. Like, I have to be a better man to outman this man. So he's going to see him like this. And he's a empty, mean asshole, essentially, in the wife's story, where he, like, wants nothing to do with her afterwards. So he's got nothing there. And then on his story, he sees himself as like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, living by my code and doing the things that I'm required to do because I am, you know, essentially incredibly masculine in a different way than Tajimaru is Mifune's character. He's viewing himself as this great bastion of like morals and he's like better than everyone else because of it. So he's like, this is me stone faced making the right choices all the time because, you know, I always know what's right. 
So he's lying to himself in that way. And then you get to see how ridiculous both him and Mifune look in the woodcutter's testimony when you actually see the duel and the way they interact with each other. So I think a lot of it is about the perception of the other characters and the way they consider him, even if they don't really actually know him. But for Mifune, it props up his story to have this man be this stone-cold killer. And and for the wife, it makes her story more empathetic if he's, you know, terrible, basically. And for himself, of course, he's going to portray himself in the best possible light of what he wants to be seen. And then when you have a party that's not connected to it all, to it at all, even though there are holes in his story because he was trying to sell the dagger, you get to see more of a true example of like what he actually is, or potentially actually, you know, none of these are the full truth or anything like that. But I think that it's interesting to see that like it's in a lot of ways it's kind of poking fun at some people who would be like oh i'm a samurai i'm great i do all these great things but it's like he's still just a person at the end of the day the other people might see him as something special or different because he has that status but it's kind of undercut by that last sequence yeah i love especially how he kind of like by the end of his testimony frames himself as like a tragic hero type Mm -hmm. which i think is great where he's just like oh i couldn't bear my wife being this awful and this bandit stealing so much so i had to just commit suicide here like really framing it as like i'm a martyr in this particular yeah. scenario um giving himself a more sort of heroic death and i think that's interesting because there's the point early on before they tell the story where the priest and the commoner when they were talking to each other like why would they give it, get his testimony it's like because the dead have no reason to lie Mm-hmm. And I love how the movie contradicts that, honestly, by <laughs> the fact that he is giving this testimony is just trying to, like, cement some kind of legacy for who he was. This is, like, his last chance to kind of cement himself, especially in, like, a public record. And it's just mm-hmm. like, I was a super cool dude, and the whole world fucked me over, and I can't believe it. I'm dying here. Uh, this is my live journal entry, my last one. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, how do you feel about him, Brian? Oh, yeah, he's great. I mean, like, I agree with everything you guys have said, and I think it's so interesting about how, like, and Kurosawa often kind of poked holes, I think, in, like, the idea of, like, the noble, like, samurai, right? Which is, like, I think is so interesting in, like, what his character is, right? Which, yeah, he is trying to be, like, the noble, like, hero of the story, and that's how he portrays himself. But, like, and you've mentioned it a couple times, John, but, like, the, the, the scene at the end where they're they're fighting and they're just, like these two grown men just like flailing around in the dirt. It it does not look heroic. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> it looks so funny. Just seeing yeah. them try and like, it, it's them like fighting, but they're both scared of each other, right? Like there's yeah. the points where they t- run to opposite sides of like the frame. That scene, which I had forgotten, it, it, I think is so important to the movie, right? Like, like you guys have said, like it is about how people see themselves. And like, I think it's the priest earlier, early on says like people lie to themselves and about themselves and yeah i yeah i I love so much about that and kind of the contrast between like mifune being this like bandit who is like a wild animal and then the kind of stoicism that you kind of think of when you think of samurai which is like you know it's an interesting play on that idea which i find i just think is one of the important things of this movie well, especially with that that kind of contrast i love the fact that it's it's very much that dressing down moment i was talking about earlier when the wife just finally like tells takes them down, while Mafune is also doing like his like childish thing, even mm. the samurai also just looks like in this very kind of pensive way still, but in a way that where you can tell that facade's melting, and it just really shows off the fact that it's like oh they're both basically animals. It's just that one 
like is domesticated, quote unquote, and the other one lives out in the forest and drinks from streams, which I love that shot. <laughs> just like <laughs> drinking from the stream, like laying down over it basically. And then he says uh, that he thinks that there was poison upstream because he got a he got a tummy ache later on. <laughs> right. Which he's just like me for real. Like I, yeah. I get it. <laughs> Every time we go out to the movies, you have to go to the stream and drink from the water first. You're not going to pay for any drinks at the theater, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're joking about that, but most times I do have a tummy ache, so... <laughs> no, that's <laughs> <You> true. <know? laughs> just like, oh, my tummy hurts. I don't know if I can have oh. dinner after this. A, a big reason for, like, why all this, like, works for me is, like, just on the filmmaking element of it alone, I love the way that Kurosawa has shots that look similar, but just are, like, from... Slightly different perspectives. Like the first time we see uh, Mufune stab the samurai, he's at an up angle and it looks almost kind of heroic because it's mm-hmm. his telling of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, versus when we do end up seeing it later in sort of the quote unquote truth of the woodcutter, um, it's like almost feels like an accident. Like he just threw it like, fuck! <laughs> did, did it work? And it, oh shit, it did. Okay. I better get out of here. Yeah, like he's not even fully looking at him. He's just like, he's. Right visibly does look uncomfortable looks uncomfortable with this entire thing but he's like but i gotta do it because i i gotta live up to what i said and it's just like you're not really selling it well there chief you should uh it's like you don't do it like you're playing darts dude (laughs) (laughs) there we go (laughs) i mean the the look of this movie is so interesting right and especially for kurosawa who like could do anything right like he can literally just make any shot he can do so much with you know in filmmaking but like you mentioned earlier thomas the kind of sets right we have the the rashomon like gate and then the courthouse and Mm -hmm. then the woods and i mean one of the things i love about the kind of courthouse setup is of course the pov shot right which is like it's all the actors are kind of looking like not straight into the lens but they're looking like towards the lens towards the camera we and, are in the face of the judges or jury or whichever side right. for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and but just the, the all the woodland scenes in this are breathtaking to me. Like, just I, I don't know what they did like back in 1950 with with that camera, but like the the woods around them look so ominous almost. I, I don't know. There's this weird kind of dreamy. Uh, not nightmare, nightmarish, but kind of creepy look to like the woods of this. I, I don't know what it is, and of course, like we get just so many shots of like them looking up into like the sun and the the sun through the trees and everything. Which um, I, I've I've watched a few kind of like interviews. Like I watched um, on the Criterion Channel. There's a you can watch Robert Altman talk about Rashomon, and he talks mm-hmm. about how he saw that and then like copied it immediately because he was like, oh my gosh, that's like. What a, what a great shot. But yeah, I, I mean, there's so many technical moments. I'm, I'm curious kind of what, what stands out to you guys and kind of any shots or any kind of edits or, or stuff like that that sticks out to you at all. I like that you guys pointed out the uh, the difference in the feel of the uh, shots when it's the woods, the gate, or the court setting. Like the court setting feels very formal. It feels very rigid, almost what you would call like a, like a professional shot. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not meant to... Uh, be a certain way it's m- meant to make you think oh this is a serious this is the law we're doing this and once you get out into the woods it almost feels fairy tale like in the woods with the yeah. uh harshness between the dark and the light 
and the way it was shot in that manner and the way the camera roves and it moves and it seems to move along with the cadence of the story being told and the thoughts of the character because even in between the different characters like the shot styles are different for example when it's the it when it's the wife's story you can see a lot of like like you were talking about, there's a lot of dread. There's a lot of there's a lot of horror in this setting, and when Mufuni's telling his, it's like, oh, it's the, all this light's shining down on me, and I'm doing all these things because you know I can, and it really affects the way each story plays out in a way even beyond the way that the story is being told, but also the way it's being seen, and I think that is something that would be really difficult to you know actually do, but of course it's managed here. And I think something that's interesting to me is that it always feels to me like when the scenes are in the woods, it almost feels like it's a play and the woods themselves are like a stage because you see it so often, you see these settings so often that you you have a really good idea of like the geographical locations of all these little landmarks around the area where this thing happens. It always feels like a restaging of the same props and everything. And it literally is, but it also feels like, you know, just different in such a way do the changes in the lighting, the changes in pacing, the changes in tone and the acting and stuff like that. And the use of light in the cinematography is also connected to all that during all these different retellings. And I think there's like a realism about the way it's shot around the gate. And it feels more like an Italian neorealist film in the way that it's shot in a lot of ways or something like the Burmese harp or something like that but it feels different than the others as well so it's it's like a film that's very neatly cut into sections that have been put together in such a way that they're compelling and you can just see all these elements like in the way that they appear next to each other and how they conflict and connect and i think it's a really fascinating way to make a movie like this especially if you're you know on a budget you have three locations essentially so you make the most of it and it's done perfectly here and especially with like how despite this being 1950 like the thing we're talking about with the lighting like finding out apparently that a lot of this was he wanted to do natural light but it didn't quite show up so well so it's a lot of like mirrors or like surrounding these characters and i think it like really bakes you inside this environment like i love that shot brian was talking about earlier when the woodcutter is first telling his story and we like travel through the bushes with him Mm-hmm. It's as if like you're entering kind of like the also the fairy tale thing that John was talking about, like you're entering into our woodland area that's like far off from society. Um, and that's like just a simple thing versus I think like the shot that like I think I'll remember from this movie is the one where uh, the the wife is by the, the stream and it's just like this beautiful shot like panning down as she's like her horse is in the background and, like we see like the trees and whatnot. That is just like a genuinely gorgeous shot that I think also kind of works for like what we're, we're talking about here with kind of like the, the, the light and the heat that's going on from the sun. However they use those mirrors and whatnot, it does such a great job of like baking our characters in it and you can see how they're reacting fully. I mean, on the kind of like the, the use of, of these three different sets, like one of the things I love is just how different they're all like shot. Like the, I mean, the rain in the like the, the Rashomon gate looks mm-hmm. like incredible. Like it's just inc- yeah. like, really like great looking like rain. And just the way that, like, you know, like you said, Tom, like, the, the woodland areas, the way they're using, like, mirrors and stuff like that, the way that the sun looks so bright, like, and especially as, as people who, you know, grew up in Florida, like, it, you know, we relate, but, like, it just looks like it's, like, beaming down on, like, the actors and, like, especially, like, Mifune, who is, like, so sweaty in this movie, <laughs> and just, like, sweating all the time. Yeah. But I just love the way that that, that looks, right? Like, the way that it's you know, he's making those kind of, the the brights really pop 
it also gives like the kind of that fairy tale quality where it feels like the movie's like glowing at times because yeah. of the, how bright it is. Like I know, I love when um the woman with like the veil on and yeah. it is like it's it's like she is like glowing like her mm. from her veil. It's a really incredible like effect that I like is not really you know earlier John you mentioned like how he Kurosawa doesn't really like his movies aren't flashy in that way and I think this movie especially like is is not really flashy and yet it's doing so many interesting like tricks and so many interesting like the way he's setting up the camera as well like especially in the Rashomon sections like just those really great close-ups that are just like really 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 like I I don't know they're like sumptuous they're just like so great to look at (laughs) Or, or even just down to, like, not just how it visually looks, but even, um, and I'm cribbing this a bit from, uh, shout out, Donald Ritchie, who was uh, a guy who would write, like, a whole book on Kurosawa, and there's, like, speaking of, of Criterion, his 2001 commentary for Rashomon is on there. I'd recommend that. A lot of interesting insights from him there. And he talks about, at one point, the fact that, like, the movie is edited in a very simple way. There's, like, either cuts, or there's, like, wipes. It just isn't, like, there's not a lot of, like, you know, Shocker, George Lucas got his love of wipes right. <laughs> from Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> Except for when uh, the bit where after the um, the guy, who we haven't shouted out his name because he's not apparently much of an actor. He didn't really act that much before or after this. But the guy who plays the commoner, uh, Kichiri Ueda, like such a fucking presence. He's like such an asshole <laughs> and such a believable where he just comes in yeah. just like, oh, what, you guys believe in the in the faith of humanity, you fucking morons. It's kill or be killed, man. You don't know. But uh, when he dresses down um, Shimura and makes him do his classic cry face, poor Shimura, and when he cries, the world yep. cries with him. Um, but when he like leaves and just Shimura and uh, Chiaki, the guy who plays the priest, are just like standing against the wall and there's a dissolve. Just like a gradual oh, yeah. dissolve from like a wide shot to like a mid shot to like a close up of the two of them. Just like, oh, fuck. We just went through all this shit. And now what do we do? There's a baby here. <laughs> what are we going to do about all this? Um, and th- th- just how in that simple like editing choice, it really immerses you in the fact that like before this felt cut and dry and now we're all exhausted. <laughs> Because humanity has let us all down. And we gotta really push into that dissolve while we sit in that for a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, like, that that kind of quality where, like, that guy, like, the commoner, is, like, the one who's, like... He's like, so what? This happens every day. Like, someone... Like, he killed him, and, like, that's... You know, people are terrible. Like, that's just the way it is. I don't know, the way that they kind of unravel this to be about, like... No, it's it's deeper than that. Like, this is about, like, you know, trust in, like humanity but also trust in like each other like can we you know especially towards the end where we get like the the kind of woodcutter revealing like his version of the story and the whole thing with the dagger which is like this this really great moment where he's like you know see like i told you like even you're you're as bad as like anyone else like you're a bandit calling another bandit a thief kind of thing like it it is such a fascinating examination of just that idea and especially as we get to like the end with the like surprise baby that's been there the whole time and um (laughs) which yeah i don't know i I, like it really does like even though this is like an 80 minute movie it does let you sort of like in that shot you're talking about thomas like it lets you sit in like this like philosophical question that this movie has presented you and like doesn't provide any answers doesn't provide any like any clear answers obviously like it's 
you know, you can kind of, everyone can kind of put their own interpretation onto this, right? Like, what is the, like, if we were to actually sit down and be like, well, what do you think actually happened in this story? Like, I'm sure we would all three have, like, very different versions of that. A real Rashomon situation, you're supposing. <laughs> three different interpretations. Yeah. But no, yeah, I think that's that's what's so fascinating about this, especially with, like you mentioned, with Shimura's character. You know, John had mentioned this earlier, just the whole factor of, like, oh, in any other movie, this would be, like, the, you know, the bit from the ending of Clue. Which is like, now this is how it really happens. Kind of thing. This is, like, what's actually going on. As we get later on, the reveal that, like, oh, he's, like, a father of seven, and he wants to adopt this kid. Yeah. Where it's almost just like, well, sometimes we even sort of, like, embellish the truth just to, like, fucking protect ourselves to some degree. Like, the world sucks. Horrible <laughs> things happen all the time. And, you know, especially in our, our modern day age where we just see horrible news item after news item that just, like, especially in, like, a 24-hour news cycle that we live in currently and from various different outlets. Like, it all just, like, shows off the fact that sometimes even that lying is, like, it's not, you know, the truth once again, but at the same time, you get sort of, like, the human element of it. We're just like, I don't know, man. Yeah, I would want, like, an answer. Like, sometimes you don't get answers, but you want to have that kind of knowledge of, like, well, this is what I saw, and this is my answer. And even then, you can't tell that to people. I love the fact that when he's uh, actually this testimony, it's all the simple stuff that, like, is provable. Of, like, yeah. I discovered this, the the dagger, the horse, all this other stuff. And that's all he can really tell the people, I suppose, like, what he has to tell himself so he can, like, fucking just sleep at night. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes back to, like, how the whole film is framed in general. Like, uh, how the truth, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. Because even though he did lie about something, it doesn't change who he is as a person. Because he has his reasons for doing it, just like everyone else does. It Actually, the film gives us reasons for all these people to lie these different ways about how they see themselves and other people they want them to see them. But at the beginning of the film, we have the priest talking about how he's lamenting his loss of faith in humanity. And by the end, he's regained it again, because even though this man has lied about stealing this dagger from this crime scene in order to sell it, he sees what type of person he actually is when he is confronted with the this baby that's been at the gate the whole time. So he, it doesn't matter at the end of the day that he did indeed lie and the story wasn't 100% true. What mattered was what the person was who was saying the story. The story itself is the story, but the truth of a, how a human being actually is is a lot more complicated, I think, is something that the film's trying to get across. And by having that last end twist, you can, with the baby coming, you can have A, the commoner dress him down and tell him how he's no better than everyone else because, you know, he did this thing that he didn't want to say and he didn't, he lied about having seen the crime and everything. But at the end of the day, he's still willing to take in this child. So the priest is, you know, happy to see that there are still good people, even though if they have to do stuff that's not necessarily good all of the time. And I think that's kind of one of the most important things with the film is it's saying that the way you talk about yourself and the way you want to be perceived don't really illuminate the way you actually are. Only your actions can actually do that. And the stories themselves, they're stories and they're going to be fabricated in one way or another so that you can either protect yourself or make yourself look better. But the reality of how you treat others and how you actually carry yourself are the things that are important, at least to the priest by the end of the film. I mean, one of the things I find so interesting kind of on rewatching this movie as well, as we're getting into like the, the philosophical kind of elements of this movie is like a, a detail I kind of really gleaned on to this time was how um, when kind of pressed for like, you know, why didn't you 
like tell the courthouse why didn't you like do anything is like he says like i didn't want to get involved and it's this like really kind of weird like kind of case of like bystander effect mm-hmm. which is like a, a, a kind of weird, interesting thing to think about especially for a film in like 1950 like i don't i remember learning about like the bystander effect but i don't know when it was like actually uh like coined but like that's that's such an interesting detail that i i just think about of like he doesn't want to get involved in any of this right like he's kind of treating it like it has nothing to do with him and yet it it does which which is i think is such an interesting kind of point of the movie um apparently that term was at least uh confirmed in 64 first time was proposed anywhere oh okay so yeah. it predates that a bit. Yeah, yeah inter- it does an interesting kind of detail that I like. Oh, that was it's kind of it's that. Another thing I, I a random kind of thought that I like had is um one of the things I love in uh is with Mifune um when he first starts telling the story and he's like talking about like he's sitting under that tree like I think you mentioned it earlier, Thomas. The way he's just kind of like like a lion just kind of laying there, um and the way he's like it was like a hard wind. And like, if it wasn't for that wind, they wouldn't have killed that man. I don't know. Just the way that he kind of says that line and the way it kind of reads to me, I, I don't know. It just has really, really stuck with me. The idea of like him saying like, well, that the wind caused me to wake up and that's why I killed this guy is such a weird, interesting like facet. It feels very true to like what a person with weird mixed up morals would think. It's right. just like, oh, it's because this particular circumstance out of anyone's control happened. Therefore, I must kill this man. Um, and also, even with Mifune, while he's under that thing, we haven't mentioned it, uh, because despite how, like, obviously what he does later, um, the whole sword and erection joke thing is, like, so well-timed. We're just, like, he's just sitting there, and then, like, the sword goes up. It's, like, it's such a perfect example of, like, Mifune's, uh, like, physical comedy, which is something that he, I feel is, like, very underrated about him, but the way he just would be so funny with just, like, a very simple movement. Um, especially once again for a movie where things get very like brutal and upsetting in terms of like what's actually going on here i think it's like really only somebody like kurosawa and like the cast that he gets can like really balance those tones very well yeah um but yeah so let's go ahead and uh, just start wrapping up here our final thoughts john you're going first uh your final thoughts any last minute things about rashomon yeah, I actually remembered what I was going on about with my belabored tangent about theater. Uh, the scenes in uh, the forest actually feel artificial, like they have like visual artifice to them in a way that makes it feel constructed in the way the stories are. That's what I was trying to say, and I failed miserably, but now here we are. Oh, look, you annotated. That's fine. We, we we approve of annotations on this show. Right here, I'll <laughs> redeem myself a little bit instead of just looking like I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, it hasn't stopped either of us, and we host this show. It never about? stops me either. I'll just keep talking, and eventually I'll be like, yeah, that is a good point. Good job, me. High five. But uh, That's how we end every episode. <laughs> that, yep. That's how it works. <laughs> uh, no, I think Rashomon is a great film for someone to start looking at Kurosawa's filmography. Once again, due to the length, due to the the way it treats its subject matter, the way it covers a lot of ground in a very, very short period of time. I think that it is a really fun movie to rewatch because, like I said, you see a lot of stuff on rewatches that you don't initially notice, especially in the conflicts and the differences, the small differences in performance between the separate stories are something that are definitely worth looking into. And if you like movies, you should watch Rashomon. It's a hot take, I know. But, like, (laughs) you'll probably like it. It's really good. Yes. uh, 
all these hot takes flying by Mr. Kira Kurosawa. But Brian, your final thoughts on Rashomon? Uh, yeah, I, I, I love this movie. Um, it, it has really grown with me as I since I first watched it. Like I feel like when I first watched it, I had that kind of reaction of like, yeah, this is a good movie. This is great. I, I kind of acknowledge why it was so influential, why it was so important. I have really just like come to love it and appreciate so much of what it's been doing or what it's doing as I've rewatched it over the years as a more philosophical film than necessarily like a narrative, right? Like it is more about those questions that it's asking. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things of like movies is how they raise these questions and don't necessarily answer them, but allow you to answer, allow you to answer them and kind of, in your own way and in your own interpretation and Rashomon is so much about that. And it's about like, you know, the idea of, you know, what happens when, when people can't trust each other and when we can't trust in, you know, the truth, right. And what is the truth? And is there such a thing as like a, an objective truth? And yeah, it's also a movie that's like 80 minutes long and, it's, you know, one of many great films from Akira Kurosawa. And I, I think this kind of begins his run of, like, just straight-up banger after banger. Because, like, right after this, he does, like... Well, he does The Idiot, which we don't talk about that. But um, he also does, like, Ikiru and Seven Samurai, I Live in Fear, Throne of Blood, right? He does all those after this. And so, like, his previous movies before this, like Stray Dog... Uh, and even Scandal, which is kind of an underappreciated movie, which is like a, a courtroom drama, basically, from what I remember, is very good. But I think this is really where he starts to just really, like, belt out, like, just masterpiece after masterpiece. And um, it's great. And it's a movie that just really grows as you kind of rewatch it. And you really just kind of find more about it and just like you said, John, just find more details, just find more like interesting nooks to kind of go into. And yeah, um, yeah it has so many great uh, Kurosawa regulars like Mifune and like Shimura, but yeah, I love it. And um, I love Akira Kurosawa, but yeah, that's my final thoughts. <laughs> Film Twitter is going to roast us for how much we just throw <laughs> is- these hot takes around. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I agree with what both of you have said. And it's interesting, like, going into, like, talking about Akira Kurosawa movie, because there's always a bit of that, you know, tension about, like, well, so many people have already said so much, like, what can I provide necessarily to the conversation? But I think what's what's interesting about it is just how, like, with an Akira Kurosawa movie, like we mentioned, despite how, like, this movie deals with, like, so many complex philosophies about, like, who we are as people, what, why we lie to each other, about, and what the truth, like, really means to us, and all this other stuff. But it's just a fascinating movie to follow, especially where it kind of has the structure of a mystery, but you don't get an actual resolve at the end of it. And it still is, like, so gripping, entertaining to watch when, especially, like, for the first time, like me... Uh, with this one, it's it's just this fascinating thing of like, well, is there a truth here? Is there not? And how gradually just realizing like there is no specific truth necessarily. Yeah. There isn't like an empirical truth. Like it, it just uh, does such a great job telling all that in a very creative and entertaining way. But uh, let's go ahead and get to our regular segment between the lines. <laughs>
So uh, every episode, we'll talk about another film that either relates to the film we're talking about today or could be like a potential alternate pick for like our C4 Classic for this. So, uh, Brian, you go ahead and start. What is your pick for this edition of Between the Lines? Yeah. So mine is another Kira Kurosawa film. I couldn't stop myself. I'm talking about a movie he made literally a decade after this in 1960. Uh, a really underappreciated movie, I think, from him, and one of his best films, in my opinion. Maybe my favorite on a on a personal level. Uh, the Bad Sleep Well, which um, this is a movie that is loosely based on Hamlet, uh, like Kurosawa did. He kind of loosely borrowed from Shakespeare in a lot of ways, and you know, there's more direct uh, adaptations he made, like Throne of Blood, but this is a movie about uh, a guy, played by Toshiro Mifune, who basically has infiltrated a Japanese corporation looking to avenge his father, who this corporation killed in some way. I won't spoil. Um, And it goes so much into themes that Kurosawa dealt with in his other films, like corruption, corporate corruption and kind of bureaucrats and that, that kind of thing, but also ideas of evil, right. And how he, he saw kind of those, those bureaucrats as evil. And it's a really incredible thriller. And it has some really incredible moments. Like there's a really great section of, at nighttime where a guy sees another guy who he thinks is dead. And it's just this really great, like shot in the dark, great black and white photography. Uh, many of his regulars show up, uh, like Takashi Shimura shows up and Toshiro Mifune is the lead. And this is a great kind of thing. What we were talking about earlier, where this film is a very stark contrast to that in this, he's wearing like a suit he looks very clean. He's very like, you know, he's wearing glasses and everything, but he's really incredible. And he gives a, a really incredible monologue that I think has not aged a day, even though this movie was made in 1960. It, it's just a really incredible movie about power, about, you know, corporations, about how those corporations and especially higher ups use their power to do awful things and remain at power and, and just all of those things that are in Kurosawa's other films. But I think this is one of my favorite of his also in contrast to this, a two and a half hour movie. And yet it again, does not feel that long at all. It's a really like, he just understood pacing in a really interesting way. It's one of my favorite Kurosawa films. It's the one of his that definitely surprised me the most. It is also maybe his darkest Especially the ending, ending, which I think is is transcendent. I think is a really incredible ending to this movie. Um, but yeah, that's that's my recommendation. Thomas, have you have you seen this one? Since it's, I know you're not uh, as well versed on Kurosawa, but is is this one that you have seen yet? Uh, I have not seen this one. And honestly, I hadn't really heard about it until you said this was going to be your pick. Um, but then doing like cursory research, I'm like, oh, this does sound interesting. Like a true film philistine, I went with the shorter Kurosawa movies as prep. Sure. Uh, just literally based on time crunch. Um, but I, I'd love to see it. Have you seen this one, John? Yeah, I have. Actually, if you want to see uh, two of his film noirs back to back, that uh, this isn't my pick, but I think watching this and Drunken Angel together is actually a really fun double feature. The Bad Sleep Well is an incredible 
compared to his earlier ventures in a film noir, it shows how much he's grown as a filmmaker. Like it's, it's incredible filmmaking. I don't want to give too much away since you haven't seen it, but I would highly recommend it. It is, it's one that maybe I should probably watch again sometime soon. I don't think I've watched it in several years, but that is a good recommendation. Yeah. I guess I'm going to watch that this weekend again. (laughs) Uh, well, I'll go ahead with my pick, um, which is another one that we could have picked for this show. It did win one of the early competitive versions of the Best Foreign Language Film Award at the Oscars in uh, 1961. I have Ingmar Bergman's film The Virgin Spring. Um, now, as much as I'm not somebody who's seen a lot of Akira Kurosawa, I am even more shamefully behind on my Bergman. I've seen this in Seventh Seal. That's like literally it. Um, but... Uh, this one I think is amazing. I've, I've loved both of those, and I think uh, I want to see more, especially with like the Virgin Spring. It's very interesting, especially considering you know, speaking to some of the stuff in this episode and content warning. Uh, this is uh, sort of the early precursor to the rape revenge film, quote unquote, um, because it's basically about this father and daughter who live out in the woods in Sweden, um, who are accosted by you know bandits who come in, and uh, they end up raping uh the daughter and it's very upsetting it's very cruel um and it's it's fascinating because i think it deals with it in a very like what can mention a tasteful manner like we did with uh, rashomon i think it's a tastefully but also in a way that feels a lot more impactful to me um because i i think that whole rape revenge genre is uh mostly full of garbage quite frankly like say a film that uh, directly was inspired by this one. And I know it has a lot of love and horror circles, but hot take, I fucking hate Last House on the Left. Like, I get, obviously, like, at the time, there was sort of a factor of, like, oh, this felt, like, different and interesting. At least that was always, like, the narrative that I got. But then watching The Virgin Spring, it's like, well, that movie's a lot more, like, grimy and gross. But The Virgin Spring does such a great job of dealing with all these things without ever, you know, feeling like it needs to be gross or awful, just really dealing in, like, the emotional element of it. And when the revenge ends up happening, it feels not, like, a righteous thing. It just feels like it's, once again, like, humanity just kind of, like, falling apart because of, like, all these horrible things we do to each other. And um, I think it's, uh, yeah, an amazing movie. And despite, you know, if you can deal with the subject matter, I think it's incredibly compelling and especially, like, it's the only rape revenge movie we ever needed quite frankly i love bergman I, i've seen a few bergman's um and i own the like criterion like hundred years of bergman like box set and it has like stayed on my shelf staring at me like when are you gonna watch all these like 50 movies or whatever um but this isn't one i've seen i i it's one i've neglected i i it sounds very interesting though especially for bergman so th- it's definitely one i need to watch at some point and speaking to the sort of length thing we had earlier, 89 minutes long. Quick movie. Hell yeah. yeah. Yes. But uh, John, have you seen that movie? Have you seen this movie? Yeah. Uh, the Virgin Spring is probably one of the, I know with the subject matter, it's going to sound wild. It's probably one of the easier Bergman films to like get a feel with. Like it, it feels different, I would say. But it, the Virgin Spring is great. And I came to that one actually in kind of a reverse uh, I write and research predominantly about horror. So I watched those two movies that you mentioned, Last House on the Left and The Virgin Spring, in reverse order. So I watched Last House first and then The Virgin Spring. But The Virgin Spring is a fantastic film, and seeing how it lays the groundwork for a lot of the things that would become archetypes and uh, cliches and story beats for Rape Revenge is fascinating because I think Virgin Spring is essentially based off of a folk story. I could be wrong. Someone please grill me if that's incorrect. But 
Um, so it's basically like, like I said, like a folk story, like it's a cautionary tale in a way. And then, you know, to see that the way that would go and be ran with later on in the seventies onwards is interesting, but the Virgin spring is actually a great film. And like all of Bergman's films, it's just absolutely beautifully shot. And uh, it's definitely one worth seeking out. And I think you said that the two you had seen were that and the seventh seal and that, that basically makes sense. That's a really good primer for Bergman. I think that kind of gives you a taste of two of his different things he likes to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you, if you'd like those, spring out from there onto his other films. And if you know, not, you don't have to. You don't have to like everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, true, very true. But uh, what about your recommendation, John? Uh, it took me a minute to figure out what I wanted to do for this, but I'm actually going to go back to the first. Best Picture winner, Wings from 1927, directed by William A. Wellman. It's a film that I watched, I don't remember, maybe 10 years ago. You ever watch a silent film and you just you just don't understand how that was made in the year it was made? Like the, the formal brilliance of some of the tracking shots. Like I remember the tracking shot in the bar went around Twitter for a while where it's a, it's a push forward oh, that's to come. That's from, that's, from, that's what oh, that's from. Yes. Okay. It's a push forward across multiple tables through a party to find the scene. It also has other stuff. Like it's got uh, the first same sex kiss. What, whether that's like a thing between friends or between coded lovers that's up to interpretation but it has the first male-to-male kiss ever in film it has the first male nudity ever in film it has absolutely insane aerial battles and like wartime shots for a film from 1927 the amount of effort put into that aspect is crazy and at the same time it also has parts that feel like expressionist film like it switches between modes depending on what it the film is trying to do in each given sequence and it just feels like it's near the end of the silent era and it feels like it's utilizing everything that silent films did very well to the nth degree essentially and it's underseen and i think that it should you know get a little bit more eyes on it and that's why i wanted to bring it to everybody's attention today it's also a romance what is it wikipedia says a romantic action war picture what a picture and that's not something you get to say every day. That's all you need for a movie, really. Yeah, it's everything, really? right? Yeah. I have not seen this one. I have seen the best unique or artistic picture from the first Oscar, <laughs> Sunrise, which is a great movie as well. Um, but I have not seen Wings. Once again, speaking to weird fucking categories, we're just like, we need an outstanding picture and best unique and artistic picture, just to really delineate it yeah. for everybody. <laughs> um, but no, I have not seen Wings. I definitely want to see it. I'm assuming... Brian, based on you not knowing that shot, that you also you were not you not seeing the side thing. No, I, I I see that shot whenever it goes viral on Twitter every like two weeks or whatever. But um, <laughs> apart from it being like the first Best Picture winner, I, I didn't really know much about the movie to be honest. And um, honestly, John, you've sold me on it because I really want to see this now. Yeah. Um, despite it being two and a half hours, I'm seeing. Yeah, there's a whole thing with the Oscars I didn't mention earlier of, like, I, I love, like, checking off the Best Picture winners that I've seen. Right. That yeah. kind of thing. Especially, like, around the time the Oscars happen, I'll watch, like, I haven't seen this Best Picture winner. I'll go ahead and watch that and uh, just add to that letterbox list um, and whatnot. <laughs> but, but yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, repeat our titles for everybody out there in case you want to add them to your watch list or whatnot, Brian. Uh, yes, I had Akira Kurosawa's 1960 film, The Bad Sleep Well. 
And I had the uh, 1960 Ingmar Bergman film, The Virgin Spring. And I had the 1927 William A. Wellman film, Wings. Yes. Uh, so we're going to be wrapping up here, but uh, stay tuned to the end. You know, as we uh, thank some people, uh, like we want to thank, of course, uh, Burial Grid for our intro music. Purchase this music at burialgrid.com. Uh, thanks to Michelle Kyle for uh, the artwork. Find her at mishkyle96 on Twitter. And thanks to our patrons at patreon.com slash cinema number two letter, where uh, every month uh, for the $1 that you all contribute, uh, you end up getting uh, bonus podcasts. We record stuff uh, all the time, like you would be able to hear, you know, in our interim, uh, we would have put out our review of Jason Statham's The Beekeeper, which we haven't seen yet. But we're we're excited to see it. You know, really, you know, Akira Kurosawa film and a David Ayer. <sighs> Akira Kurosawa and Jason Statham should have worked together. That would have been. <laughs> Boy, I'm the samurai. Um, but uh, yeah, you can you'll be able to listen to that, and you'll also be able to hear um, our bonus podcast by the end of the month, in which uh, I introduce Brian to the '90s uh, animated series from Simpsons co-creators Algene and Mike Reese, The Critic. A very cinema-focused animated show that I'm curious yes. how if a, a Zoomer like Ryan will get all these weird references that are in there that I didn't even get the first time I watched this show. Oh, I can't wait. That's going to be fun. Yes. Um, but you'll, you'll, you can hear all that stuff in a, hours of bonus content we did before that um, over on our Patreon for just that $1. Once again, it's patreon.com slash cinema number two letter. But we also want to thank our guest, John... Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Go ahead and plug yourself. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can mostly find me. I'll post about whatever I'm writing over on uh, Twitter on at Astroslop. Uh, I'm coming back to writing freelance again. I kind of took last year off. I'm also working on that book uh, about uh, queerness in 1950s and 60s horror and sci-fi films. So I'll be posting more about that as it comes out. But it should be a lot more writing coming out lately. So. Pretty excited about it. Great to hear. We'll definitely read. Hell yeah. But um, for more of us, our little rinky-dink operation, uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever hell site you use. Uh, We'll be at cinema number two letter on there. And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing over at film-cred.com and also at marianithomas.wordpress.com, where hopefully I would have already released my top 20 list of 2023. You could read all the movies that I ended up really liking, so you can avoid them. Because why trust my taste? Uh, yes, and you can find me on Twitter as well, at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three, where I... Still, I still go on Twitter once a day. I love to, I love to wake up and go on hell. Um, <laughs> or you can follow me on Letterboxd as well, where I'm much more active and I'm, you know, got so many lists going on. I love to update my <laughs> lists. So follow me on there. And uh, for more of us, uh, please uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into the archives for our Podbean main feed for the past three seasons that we've done of this show and also all the old double-edged, double-bell stuff I used to do. All that is on there for you to peruse. And, uh, you know, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight for people. But the best way to help us out for free is to rate, review, or simply share the show around and give us more visibility, at least your perception of how our show is. 
That's what you can put into the world. Uh, but let's go ahead and tease our next episode, Brian, uh, our eye for Indy for uh, this one, one Oscar season uh, is uh, going to be about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, which I'm very curious to revisit 20th anniversary here. Uh, John, are you a fan of this one? I haven't seen it in, since I was a teenager, probably, so it's hard to really say. I'd have to go back and watch it. I do enjoy Kaufman's work, so I'll have yeah. to get back to it. I don't have a whole lot to add. I remember liking it, but it's been too long. I mean, to be fair, it's the same for me. I have not seen it since I was a teenager as well. I'm very curious to see how that uh, holds up. And there's also so much to talk about, Brian, right, with like Jim Carrey, Michelle Gondry, Kaufman, oh, yeah. as John mentioned. There's so much there. What a cast. Yes. Yes, I and I I'm it's a movie I have I've seen a few times and uh especially since I first watched it in high school and it it still is one of those ones that kind of really really gets me on an emotional level so I think I will I'll see I'll, I'll see you guys here with some tissues <laughs> because <laughs> it it is does make me cry often. <laughs> It'll be very interesting to discuss that, but that's for next week. Until then, everybody, uh, I think now, with whatever editing we've done, we've gone over 88 minutes, so therefore uh, we are either inferior to Akira Kurosawa or we have beaten him. (laughs) 